Hi, I'm Kathy Fang with Below the Radar, a knowledge democracy podcast. Below the Radar is recorded on the territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. On this episode of Below the Radar, our host Am Johal is joined by author, cultural critic, and organizer David Spanner. He is in conversation with Am about his latest book, Solidarity, Canada's Unknown Revolution of 1983. I hope you enjoy. Okay, welcome to Below the Radar. Delighted that you could join us again this week. We're really excited to have our special guest, David Spanner, with us today. He's written a new book, uh, Solidarity, Canada's Unknown Revolution of 1983. Welcome, David. Uh, It's nice to be here. David, maybe we can begin with you introducing yourself a little bit. Um, Yeah, I've worked as a writer for a long time in Vancouver. I originally worked in the underground press and then worked in the student press as well and was an activist, you know, in that era before Solidarity Uprising 1983, actually had been an activist earlier and worked, like I say, in the underground press. The movement that the book is about that we're going to be talking about when that happened, I had just gotten a job at a daily newspaper. There used to be a third daily newspaper in the Vancouver area called The Columbian. And I'd gotten a job there. And uh, just as this uprising broke out across the province. And so over the next few months, I I covered it. And, um, you know, it was like an amazing event, really. And over the years, I, you know, couldn't help but notice that it really hasn't been remembered that well. There hasn't been a lot written about it. There hasn't been a lot, you know, Canadian history books seldom mention it. But, um, you know, I don't know how much you want me to get into that at this point to introduce the event itself. But basically, as far as my own background, I had been an activist and a writer, and I had just started working at a daily paper when this uprising happened. Yeah. So you just scooped my second question, which was going to be, uh, what were you doing at the time of solidarity? So we're talking about 1983. For those of us in the, the audience who don't remember that period, it's deeply memorable for me because I was 10 years old in Williams Lake, not perhaps having a fulsome understanding of what was going on. But I do remember a walkout that happened at our school that uh, was part of a, a larger rally that was happening. And there were speeches from students, including those in elementary school. So it felt like being part of a a movement. My father worked as a, a lumber grader, and this was definitely in the atmosphere and in the the era. And at those times, those provincial elections were, from a child's perspective, the Bill Bennett versus Dave Barrett elections were just legendary. They would both be like crying at the end of speeches. I don't know if they actually were, but it felt like that. And it was this polarizing left-right divide in that moment of of restraint, and certainly teachers were heavily politicized at that time. You start the book uh, with a really interesting passage with a moment about a decade before, and you're all sitting in Jim Green's living room in Kitsilano at the time with a couple of people, and you're listening to When the Ship Comes In by Bob Dylan and Jim Green's playing it over and over as a kind of uh, parable around uh, trying to do away with the Socrates. I'm wondering if you can speak about that for a moment. Okay, yeah, well, I was a student activist at the time, and this is uh, early 70s, and uh, there was a couple of other student activists there as well. And Jim Green, people know him. I mean, he became very famous, actually, as a downtown Eastside organizer. And a lot of people have that image of him as this 
guy working on the downtown east side. But before that, you know, he had been a, a college prof. And at this point, he was actually living on the west side in Kitsilano in a rented place, a really beautiful old house. And some of us had gone over to his place. I mean, in those days, there was kind of a simpatico between sometimes between radical profs and radical students. You, you had a friendly relationship. And some of us, a few of us had gone over to his house and we ended up spending hours there that night, just uh, into the morning talking about politics, culture, all sorts of things. And at one point, it's too bad you don't have the recording right now. It's a great song. At one point, he pulled out this Bob Dylan song when the ship comes in and said, the ship is the revolution. And he played the song and it was a very powerful song. And in that, in the introduction, I just sort of recall that moment because the lyric that he particularly liked and that we were listening to very intently was about being uncompromising in the face of the Socrates of the world. And that sort of really fits in with this whole story about solidarity and how much you compromise when you're dealing with them. And there was a big divide in the resistance between how far you go in being uncompromising. Just to get a little bit of background about the actual event itself, you know, which you're, this is sort of leading into here, obviously, is that 1983 started out pretty much like you were talking about that big divide between Bennett and Barrett back then. But it's kind of interesting, like from the 1950s to the 1990s, politically, BC was kind of divided by two remnants of the 1930s. The NDP, which was, you know, the successor to the old Cooperative Commonwealth Federation, you know, which was the CCF, the Electoral Democratic Socialist Party, you know, it was a descendant of the, the sort of left movements of the 1930s, whereas the Social Credit Party was a descendant of the far right movements of the 1930s. So you had these two movements that were kind of rooted in the Depression era that basically dominated BC politics for about half a century. And in early 83, the two went at each other in another provincial election, which they've been doing, you know, every three, four years uh, since the early 50s. And people thought this time that Barrett, Dave Barrett's uh, NDP was going to be elected, but they lost. But following the election, people were shocked because the Bill Bennett government, the Socred government, enacted some legislation that they really hadn't talked about during the campaign. It was this sort of avalanche of far right-wing legislation that attacked almost everything progressive in the province. It attacked union rights in a massive way to the point where people could be fired without cause, even if they were in a union. It attacked funding for women's organizations. It attacked Medicare. It attacked the education system. Uh, the public education system came under heavy attack in, in this budget. I mean, it was an all-out assault, essentially, on many, many people in BC. But what Bennett and his SoCred cohorts didn't count on was the massive resistance that rose up spontaneously across the province. I mean, it was huge rallies, occupations, protests like you hadn't seen before here. And it wasn't just a Vancouver-centric thing. Like you mentioned Williams Lake. There was a protest in Williams Lake with 1,500 people. I don't know what percentage of the population of the town that was in those days. You probably know better than me what the population of Williams Lake was in 1983. But I would imagine, I, I would say, I bet it was a, at least a quarter of the, of the town. And so, I mean, that was an example of how this resistance just spread 
quickly, right across the province. And an organization formed, actually two organizations. They were both called Solidarity. Operation Solidarity was the trade union component of the movement. Uh, The Solidarity Coalition was the social justice community group, social movement component of it. And those two movements were kind of rising up simultaneously against the Socrates that summer. Let's just uh, talk a little bit about Bill Bennett as a figure. He, of course, was the son of W.A.C. Bennett, who was a kind of titan and a big name of provincial uh, politics based out of Kelowna. There's a wonderful group of books by Stan Persky, son of Socrates, that talk about Bill Bennett. But of course, there was this wider kind of uh, political moment of neoliberalism of Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher that came in in 1979 and 80. So I guess in some sense, the restraint period of 1983 that led into this organizing, that Bill Bennett was sort of a part of this political inflection from the right that was happening. Yeah, well, Bill Bennett was a a son of a Socrat. And his dad was a real uh, was a major demagogue who was really uh, notorious across Canada through the 50s and 60s, you know, and a longtime premier of the province was, uh, you know, an incessant red baiter, too, I should mention. And and so that's uh, it came out of the Okanagan, Kelowna. They lived in Kelowna. And uh, so Bill, you know, followed in his father's footsteps and took over the party. and. He he during this period, you know, he was very, you know, the Socrates were receptive to right wing developments around the world. And as you mentioned, there was several taking place at that point in the early 80s. There was a whole emergence of Thatcherism, Reaganism, all sorts of names, restraint, austerity, uh, neoliberalism, uh, the old fashioned term for it, capitalism. And so. There was this happening, you know, this really far right movements, government movements by particularly Reagan and Thatcher, in which they attacked social programs and, and unions. And it was like, you know, a, it was a pretty concerted effort that was going on. And people instantly linked what was happening in BC with this new legislation to what was happening in England and the US. Uh, at the same time. And there were right-wing think tanks that had emerged in BC at the time as well. So a lot of people saw this this rising of the far right in BC that took place in uh, 1983 as directly connected to uh, what was going on with Thatcher and Reagan. So there, of course, is that Operation Solidarity as the labor movement-led part of the project. But of course, there was a Solidarity Coalition, which was partially supported and funded by the the labor movement, but included community organizations. And you, of course, had the BC Federation of Labor and others, but, you know, big personalities like uh, Jack Monroe, whose name is is definitely associated with that moment of solidarity with a poem of uh, Tom Wayman and, and others. But I'm wondering if you can sort of set up this dynamic between Operation Solidarity, the Solidarity Coalition, in terms of like what was working, but also those fissures that happen inside of social movements where things can really start to fragment? Well, I think what happened is you have to look at the big picture of how these groups emerged at that moment. You know, I I think that, you know, people basically, you know, around around the world, you know, they're trying to 
they they cope individually with all sorts of problems and sort of alienation and and difficulties everyday life and usually they're just coping with it on their own and then people try to get through all of this but every once in a while something happens and you're no longer on your own and there's all sorts of sort of simmering discontent that exists around the world you know i mean just like i was saying the alienation the exploitation the the kind of lives that a lot of people you know live yeah and and what happens every once in a while though something triggers a movement that brings people together a transformative movement to sweep away a lot of the the stuff and you can't really predict the rising of these movements they happen all, almost spontaneously, and, and sometimes they disappear as quickly as they come. I mean, you can go through history. A, a couple of recent examples, the Occupy movement of 2011 and the anti-racism protests of 2020. And you can go way back, you know, to a whole continuum of all sorts of movements like that. These are these euphoric uprisings that take place, and they express the repressed potential that exists in advanced capitalist society that's being repressed by the system as it exists. And these movements just explode and, and they're expressions of long simmering discontent in people's personal lives, people's social working lives. And these movements explode, but they're very rare. But when they come, they're like a huge euphoric uprising. And uh, it happened in Paris, 1968, Cairo, 2011. I mean, you can go through history and see these movements. Now, the thing that's interesting with the Solidarity Uprising in BC, it was a Canadian version of these movements. It didn't get the same publicity as it might have gotten if it had happened in Paris or New York, but it was a massive, exhilarating experience for the people who went through it. And it basically was a transformative thing in which you felt that major social change could actually take place. It seemed real. And, and part of the reason it seemed so real is you had the components that you mentioned to start this long answer. One component being the unions were involved. The second component, social movements were involved. But the third component, which was equally significant, is just a lot of citizens of BC who had never been activists, never been union activists, never been in social movements, also were completely outraged by the injustice of this budget. And they were involved. They got involved. Just people who had never been active before. So what you had was this coming together in a way that you really hadn't seen before in BC. And, and it's the kind of thing that, you know, happens, I was going to say once in a generation, but a generation's like 15 years. It's, it's not even once in a generation. They're very, very rare. And it happened right here. And in terms of the components you mentioned, the union component was interesting because the union movement at the time had some fairly militant elements within it, you know, but it also had some pretty conservative elements within it. And they were all thrown into this whole drama that was taking place. Then on the social movement side, it was almost like it was an interesting time because, you know, people talk about identity politics now. This was almost the emergence of identity politics happened in the 70s and 80s. I mean, if you look back at the history of capitalism and the resistance to it, it's not it hasn't existed forever, like some people might think. I mean, it's a couple of hundred years old. In the early 1800s, the rising of industrial capitalism, which was a very unjust movement, uh, created societies that were based on child labor, uh, you know, sweatshop labor, um, 
unlivable wages and working conditions. It was a terrible situation with the rising of industrial urban capitalism. And so the resistance to that was a new movement called socialism. And for the first 150 years of socialism, it was primarily organized around class and unions and confronting what I, I just talked about. But in the 1960s and 70s, there was suddenly the emergence of new movements that people were just as passionate about as the working class left-wing movements had been about class and, and unions. And there was the rising of the feminist movement, for example. There was the rising of the gay movement, the environmental movement, countercultural, subcultural movements. And this started exploding. And, and so back in those days, we didn't call it identity politics. We called it liberation movement politics. You had youth liberation and women's liberation and gay liberation and black liberation. But there was the, these new movements were emerging and Vancouver had been very active during what was called the new left of the late 60s and 70s that involved these movements, student movement as well, and anti-war movement. And these, and so these social movements had become a really major significant part of the left by 1983. And so a lot of the people who were involved in what was called the Solidarity Coalition had come out of those movements. For example, it was a major component of the Solidarity Coalition was a group called Women Against the Budget, which was a, a feminist organization that was really, really active during Solidarity and played a major role in a lot of the protests and the activism in Solidarity. And that's one example of that. But, but people from all of the movements I, I, I just mentioned had representatives at the weekly Solidarity Coalition meetings. So you had the rising of this really powerful movement, Solidarity Coalition of Social Movements. It was a movement of social movements. At the same time, you had the unions, which, which was called Operation Solidarity. And they, you know, Jack Monroe, um, not Jack Monroe, Art Kuby, who was at the time the president of the BC Federation of Labor, was a very decent man who was very sensitive to the social movements, very aware of them and very supportive. And it was actually his idea to create that component the Solidarity Coalition. And so what you had is, which was really quite remarkable when you think about it, you had the rising of the unions and the rising of the social movements and the rising of just other citizens all happening simultaneously in one place. And I mean, I'll just give you a couple of examples of how that manifested. There was a massive rally at Empire Stadium that people still you know, remember very fondly. There was a huge march on the hotel Vancouver, where the Socreds were having their annual conference, you know, I don't know how many people were there, but the, you know, it was, it was just absolutely massive though. There was occupations, for example, of the premier's office in downtown Vancouver, an occupation of the Tranquil Mental Health Facility in Kamloops. And on top of all of this, ultimately there was talk of a general strike. And I imagine that was quite polarizing within the labor movement, as you articulate. Um, can you speak a little bit to that dynamic between Art Kuby, Jack Monroe, uh, other leaders in the labor movement, Larry Keene, and others? Because um, a lot of this sort of conversation was happening in the background, and there wasn't necessarily a kind of uh, a similar viewpoint in terms of how to deal with the, the crisis that was unfolding in terms of both in the media and in terms of negotiating with Bennett. There's, of course, the famous moment of Jack Monroe going to Kelowna to negotiate with the premier and, and a feeling of 
the social movements being sold out in the process. So I'm wondering if you can sort of set up the moment in terms of how that dynamic unfolded. Yeah. Well, it was more like capitulate rather than negotiate, I would say, when he went up to Kelowna. Well, you know, the thing is, it was the labor movement was quite divided. There were the business unions, you know, the probably most notable representative of that way of thinking would be Monroe, who basically saw the purpose of unions primarily as the next contract. For him, the idea of social movements or or striking for social justice issues was just anathema to him, you know, the idea. And so what came to kind of define solidarity during it was lasted for four months, by the way, the solidarity movement from July to November of 83. And what I would say what ultimately came to define it more than anything was to general strike or not to general strike. The issue of whether all of this activism and all of this energy was going to read, where was it going to go? And a lot of people, it became evident that if you're going to take it to the next level and actually back the soap reds down, we have the forces right now to engage in a general strike. And that's a huge thing. I mean, these do not happen that often in the 20th century. You know, you have to go back to 1919 Winnipeg, you know, and uh, there's one in Quebec as well later on. But it's very, very rare. So I would say that was the defining question was whether or not to have a move to a general strike. Now, Solidarity Coalition was on side with the general strike. Now, the union movement was divided. In the book I wrote, I talk about obsolete unionism. And I want to stress, I'm talking about the Jack Monroe's of the world, not a lot of the progressive components of the union movement who were far from that. And there were quite a few of them at the time. And just an example of some of them, there would be like the Fishman's Union was very progressive. The postal workers were very progressive. There were the KMA, you know, uh, which was the Canadian union movement, and Jess Suckamore and, and that movement. And there were several movements, uh, several unions involved in that. There were also very, very left. I think the left at the time, the left wing union movement, which it's hard to put a specific number on it, but I would say maybe 20, 25 percent, 20 percent of the union movement. They tended to have three backgrounds, the left wing union leaders at the time. They were either expats like Raj Shohan and Jess Sakamar, who had come from England, Raj Shohan, who had come from India. Or they were um, had come out of the new left I talked about before, like Larry Keene had been a student radical and, and all of that down in the U.S. before he came up. You know, I mean, they came out of those kind of areas or the third component to the radical would be uh, Communist Party leadership in some of the unions at the time, uh, including the fishermen and the carpenters. So those are kind of the left unions, which are quite substantial for North America at the time to have that many left-wing-led unions. Uh, And so I want to stress that when we talk about the great sellout of some of the unions in Monroe and whatnot, there were also unions that were totally on side with General Strike and on side with the Solidarity Coalition. So this is the split that was taking place. And it was really over that issue. And it all comes down to how you see this thing. Do you see it just as, oh, we're, see people, general strikes in a long history that goes back to the beginning of the 1800s. And, you know, some people see it as kind of just something to deal with a specific set of issues. But there are other people on the left who actually see it as a transformative thing. And I'll just give you one quick example. France, 1968, which had a legendary general strike. It started as some student protests. 
the police uh, ruthlessly attacked the student protests, so the unions joined in. Before long, there was a French general strike across the entire country, May, June, 1968. And the thing that was interesting is they, instead of just walking out, they occupied and they started running things collectively. You know, there's different terms for that kind of general strike, but there have been a lot of people on the left whether it's uh, Marxists, anarchists, left-wing democratic socialists that have are very aware of this idea of a general strike in which people assume control of the means of production and transform the society. And so within the solidarity movement, you had people from that perspective all the way to people like the Monroes who just hated the idea of any kind of general strike. And then in between, you had other people saw it more so like a tactical thing or, or something just to deal with the so-called legislation. So, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if that sort of explains yeah, yeah. some of the dynamics around the general strike. Yeah, yeah. The, the French uh, philosopher, Elaine Badu, who comes out of the May 68, he calls these moments of eruption events. And, and he does talk about it in the way that you do, that they're very rare. They're exceptional they happen maybe, uh, you know, something even beyond a generation and certainly Operation Solidarity or that moment of solidarity could be viewed that way. What I really loved about the book as well were these um, interviews that you did with people who are still living in and around Vancouver who were involved in various ways. You talked to Patsy George, Marcy Toms, as mentioned, Stuart Alcock, people like Rod Shohan, who had, you know, come out of the the development of the farm workers union, but also anti-racist uh, work that was burgeoning at the time and really coming out into the open. And I'm wondering if you can speak a little bit to some of these figures like Patsy George, Marcy Toms, Rod Chohan, in terms of how they were situated within the solidarity struggle. Well, you know, the reason I did that, and I actually do that a lot with my writing, is that, and uh, other writing as well, is I think it's really the idea of telling their personal stories as well as their activist histories is important because they're, they're intertwined. And I think it has it's more powerful to talk about an issue if you're talking about through a, a human being's experience working on that issue and how they came to that issue. And so it's the whole idea of like the personal is political and the political is personal and whatnot. And so it's a very conscious thing, actually, to sort of look at these issues and these different movements through the life experiences of individuals who were heavily involved. And I think in doing that, it kind of became sort of a history of BC, of not just 1983, but of a significant chunk of the 20th century, because you have a lot of people there. And some people, you know, they're activists, you know, more in 83 or they're the first generation activists. You know, other people who had like a grandfather, for example, one of the staff members of Solidarity Times, David Lester's grandfather was a Vancouver Wobbly, like back in the 19 teens. And so I think in, in looking at the, the history of people that way and their personal lives, it kind of a sort of personalizes political struggle and B, sort of you see where people came from and, and how the issues develop and how all of these choices are very personal. You know, the choice to become an activist, the choice to put yourself on the line like a lot of people did then. And so I think in, that's a big part of the reason why I wrote that stuff. It wasn't just to sort of uh, be folksy or something. You know, it was actually to combine those two things and try to explain the issues through people's experiences. As far as some of the people you mentioned, I was 
you know, deeply moved by a lot of their stories, you know, I'm talking to a lot of the people who had been active in that and what it meant to them and their own lives and how different experiences in their life. I mean, you mentioned Marcy Toms, for example. She was one of the founders of the first feminist organization in Western Canada and one of the first feminist organizations in the world, the uh, Simon Fraser University Women's Caucus in the late 60s. Because, you know, at the time, feminism was a new movement. And this group came together there. And later on, during Solidarity, by that point, she was very active in the BC Teachers Federation. So it's an interesting, there's links between all of these different movements, and a lot of it's very personal, you know. And uh, Patsy George is still in, in Vancouver these days, but but she was uh, she lost her job in the in the middle of this. That's right. That's one thing to keep in mind that the BC Government Employees Union was the first one hit as far as job loss. Part of the legislation they could fire government workers without cost, even if they had a union contract. So of course they went after the Patsy Georges of the world, who were activists, uh, union, uh, you know, as well as uh, government workers and. So, yeah, she lost her job and then was hired on at the Solidarity Coalition and became one of their paid staffers. And, you know, she talks about traveling the province. Like, again, I want to stress, you mentioned Williams Lake. She talks about going to Prince George and just walking into a bar on a Friday or Saturday night, you know, with all these hulking, you know, workers, uh, you know, they have a night off and just going up to them, approaching them. This small woman with, you know, who had never experience that that kind of politics with them and just approaching them and talking to them about solidarity. She was a, like a province-wide organizer and she really was successful. She really reached these people just because she has such a, a presence herself and she's such a strong woman and, and had, had insights that could cross bridges, you know. And so that's an example of how, uh, you know, people just went out, fanned out. You know, I want to stress what Things tend to be kind of Vancouver centric in BC sometimes. And there was an element of that. You have to be honest about it. But it, this time it went considerably beyond that. Like Victoria had massive rallies, but also right across the province, there were solidarity coalitions and Operation Solidarity offices. And they were, you know, doing rallies and teachings and all sorts of activism from Williams Lake to Prince George to. Terrace. Terrace had a lot of activism at the time during that period. The Kootenays. I mean, yeah, it was just a thing where people everywhere. It was it was very interesting, you know, because people don't think of those kind of rural areas as people who are receptive to left politics. They think of it as a, a lot of people think of it as more of an urban thing. And they think that there's a lot of redneckism in those places. But it's interesting that a movement if it's popular enough and mass enough and is reaching people in a creative way, a left movement, this showed that a left movement can reach those people in those towns. And that in every one of those towns, like I was saying, I bet it was at least 25% of the uh, Williams Lake population came out to that rally. And you have other situations where the pop is even more, higher percentage. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, in terms of the people, uh, you know, they were, the, the core organizers, whether it was Patsy George, Marcy Toms, other people like that, Larry Keene played a, a major significant role in all of this, of course. They were there was a real strong group of personalities that would meet, you know, around these tables at the Solidarity Coalition office once a week during the whole thing. And it brought together in one room 
a lot of legendary figures, you know, like you mentioned, Jim Green, he was at those meetings. Patsy George was at those meetings. Stuart Alcock, who you mentioned, was at those meetings. Early, in, uh, you know, environmentalist activists and student activists. I mean, it was just a really amazing group of people who normally didn't engage in each other's issues. They worked in their own silo. And suddenly everybody from all these different areas of activism were going to the same protests together. Yeah, it was great to hear the backstory of people's political awakening that preceded Operation Solidarity or Solidarity in general, that people rose to the political moment. You know, you, you mentioned in the book uh, people like John Shields and others, Raj Chauhan. But there was uh, something about, you know, their politics had been formed before, maybe 5, 10, 15 years from other social movements. And in this moment when the crisis emerged that people could act out their politics in a way that uh, brought things together. No, that's a very good point. And and I think that this thing wasn't in a vacuum. If you're going to write about 1983, you can't just write about 1983 if you want to understand it. These people came out of Vancouver and BC as a whole, but talk about Vancouver in particular this time, uh, has a real long history of activism. You know, that goes back to the Wobblies, for example. They were named in Vancouver, the legendary anarcho-syndicalist union, the Wobblies. Greenpeace was coined in Vancouver. Even Occupy Wall Street was coined in B.C., the term. Um, And so, I mean, there's a there's a really long history in the during the Depression. There was mass movements. Uh, The CCF was quite left organization. Back in those days, they were more Tom Douglas than Tom Mulcair. If you know what I mean. And 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 they were very activist uh, lefty movement that was really important in B.C., the Communist Party in the 30s, 40s, the Wobblies. So you had this long history of activism like B.C. was really I mean, it was known people call it jokingly the left coast. But there's an element of truth to that and a large element of truth to it. And it continued on in the 60s and 70s, new left movements, you know. And so. Yeah, I mean, I think to understand 1983, you have to understand some of this stuff. And the union movement as well, you know, has had periods in which there was a lot of militancy and a lot of, they have quite a storied history in BC as well. So what do you think uh, solidarity has to teach us today? And and why write this book now? Like what drove you to bring this book into existence right now? Why did you think it was important to tell this story? Well, like I said, I had come out of the underground press. So I had a perspective already, a political, critical political perspective when I got a job at the Columbian, which was the third daily. And I became the labor reporter while solidarity was going on. And over the years, it seemed like such a remarkable bit of Canadian history that had been ignored. I mean, it's very seldom mentioned in history books. There's been very little written about it or I mean. If it had happened in New York or Paris or a place like that, there'd be a long litany of books and documentaries. So I had kind of thought it had been lost in history to a certain extent. And I had kind of experienced it as as someone writing about it. And I thought it was important while people are still around to talk about it, to document it. So that was sort of why the significance of it to me when I started working on it. But while I was working on it, it became even more significant. It became more timely because what you saw over the last couple of years, last few years, there was the rising of far right governments and movements 
uh, you know, like Trumpism in the U.S., Brazil, Hungary. I mean, and and to different extents all over the place, you know, the rising of these far right governments. And so it became more timely and significant than, you know, when I initially started it to document it in, in the sense that what it provides, if you look at this movement, it's a lesson in how to resist far right governments, you know, because it was actually very, very successful. And they were on the it was on the verge of a general strike and it had all of the pieces in place to do that, which is quite unusual, uh, more than quite unusual. It's remarkable. And and if that general strike had happened, who knows what might have happened, how far they might have backed that government down. So I, I think when you ask me the significance, I think it's a lesson in how to confront those kind of far right governmental policies. David, is anything you'd like to add? Well, one of the things I thought was interesting about it, too, is there's a cultural component to the whole thing. Right. And B.C. and I mentioned this in the book as well, that there was kind of a B.C. And, you know, I was talking about Vancouver before, but it does sort of, you know, there's all sorts of pockets across the province of really interesting things that go on. And and one of the things is that B.C. has a remarkable left wing history, but it also has a remarkable subcultural history. I mean, starting with uh, sort of in the a magazine that came out of uh, UBC called Tish, which kind of dealt with a lot of the beat style writings and new poetry of the 50s and 60s. And it was really known all over the place. And then the counterculture here and then the punk scene here. And then and, and a lot of these people were involved as well and were drawn to this. And I think, you know, BC is an interesting place. I mean, it's an interesting place to write about because you have. If, you, if you're coming from a progressive perspective, because you have the political stuff, but you also have the cultural stuff. And so it was a moment, you know, it definitely was a moment. Yeah. David, thank you so much for bringing this uh, book into existence. It was a wonderful read. And for those of you out in the audience, I highly encourage you to get out and uh, get a copy. It uh, feels like recent history. And certainly my memories came back in reading through it and seeing those photographs as well. So thank you so much for joining us on Below the Radar. Oh, I appreciate it. I enjoyed being here. Great talking with you. Below the Radar is the Knowledge Democracy podcast created by SFU's Van City Office of Community Engagement. Thanks for listening to our conversation with David Spanner. Head to the show notes as always to find links to David's other work and to the full transcript of this episode. If you like our show, Hit subscribe to make sure you never miss an episode. Thanks again and see you next time on Below the Radar.